Good morning. This morning I'm going to be reading from Luke 24, verses 28 through 32. If you'd like to follow along with me in the Pew Bible, that is page 937. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Do not our heart burn with, within us? He talked with us, as he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. Several of our members are back home after taking trips on spring break, and we welcome you back home and glad that you've had a, a safe trip home. And of course, many are visiting uh, this morning. We're thankful that you're guests here this morning. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also. Uh, we've had some tremendous occasions over the past week or so. Just yesterday, we had a great egg hunt. We had babies and eggs. We had the Easter bunny. We had moms and dads and babies. We had children gathering the little treasures. We had tons of activities. We had a cakewalk. And if you'll notice, that circle is just almost perfect. That's because we brought in a professional surveyor, Doug McCormick. Also, we had a lot of crafts. And we also had putting. We had the big slide that kids love. We had even pony rides. And of course, the face paint as always works wonders. Just look how much better the guy on the right looks than the guy on the left. And both of them look better than their dad and granddad. They, and then these two young ladies look beautiful. Even the food was beautiful and delicious. It was just almost a picture perfect day. The weather was great. The guests that were there, the kids that were there. And you know, anytime you have an activity like this, you have some of the best of guys that come. And then also, you also sometimes have the riffraff and you just can't get away from that. But it was a great day overall. And so to each of you that came, uh, Perhaps you were a guest yesterday and again today, and we just want to tell you thank you for coming. And for our children, we love you, and we're thankful that you had a good day yesterday. And for all those that helped, it was amazing how many activities and how many helpers there were involved. And one of our newer deacons is Joey Cartwright, and he and his wife, Jeanette, just did a tremendous job leading this day. Also last night, just before midnight, our team that went to do a medical evangelistic campaign in El Salvador returned home. And we're thankful that a church was planted in the city that they were working in. That city was located in the San Salvador district. And they had six baptisms, saw just under 1,700 patients. You'll notice also the teddy bears. It's interesting that while those were being given away in Latin America last week, at the very same time, I received this text. And it was from a woman that has visited us some in the past. And she said, we're at Summit today for some dental surgery for, and she had her son's name there. While being admitted, we were offered a teddy bear, had a tag on it, said, made with love by the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. 
I'm grateful for the effort and consideration. Please pass the thanks to those responsible for making the bears. Truly God expects us and teaches us as his children, his family to be good neighbors. And that's what we strive to do, just even to our children like yesterday with the egg hunt or even go into Latin America, what kind of neighbor that loves the Lord and knows that he's a savior wouldn't travel long distances to tell others about the savior or even the teddy bears, a small but yet deep and meaningful gesture to say, we love you. And at the end of April, on April 23rd, we wanna have another way that we'll simply say to single moms, we love you and we wanna help you. And we've learned that one of the ways that is very helpful to them is, is helping the single moms with their cars. For many of them, that's an area of unknown, but yet their car is so necessary to get to work, to get their kids where they need to go. And so this is a day where the oil change is free and mechanics look over your car and just try to give you advice, but also your car is detailed on that day and you're pampered on that day and your children are pampered on that day. And it truly is a wonderful day. If you're a single mom, we'd like for you to go at the information center, there'll be these cards and you can call this number and have that info that's on the back of the card and you can schedule your appointment for that day. If you want to give an invitation to somebody that is a neighbor, is a family member, is a coworker, please go back to the information center and you can pick up those cards. And it's just another way that we would like to say, we want to be a neighbor the way God would want us to be a neighbor. We truly want to be his children, his family, loving others as he has taught us to love. With that in mind, we think about the theme for today, hope. Hope is one of the most beautiful words in language. It's a word that when we do truly experience it, we experience a state of peace. A feeling even accompanies it. Oftentimes that feeling is, is felt with a sigh, a yes, or sometimes even a very, very meaningful thank you, Lord Jesus. It brings peace into our heart. But I want you to notice that the spiritual hope that we read about in the Bible is quite a bit different than the way we sometimes just in our casual language throw around the word hope where hope is just some kind of meaningless wish. Oh, I hope one day to take a, a, a cruise around the world. But in reality, you probably don't expect that. That's just some kind of wish that you throw out there. That's not the way it's used in Scripture. In Scripture, hope is tied to the knowledge of God's promises and the trust that God will keep His promise. Knowledge and trust is what creates the spiritual hope. And so when we know that kind of hope, we have a hope not in just what we could do for ourselves, but something far greater. It's what God can do for us. Proverbs 13 and 12, though, gives a quick reference of what happens when that hope is delayed. In other words, when we don't see that hope, it says hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. Have you ever noticed that when your hope is shattered, hopelessness that oftentimes a physical reaction takes place. You get nauseous, your stomach hurts. Sometimes people get ulcers, lumps in their throat, tears flow down their face. Listen, hopelessness is a very real state. It's horrible in one sense. Z is a blogger online and also an artist. And she drew this picture on the day that she posted under vortex of hopelessness. 
She described that day as living in a black hole and there's no way out. I feel like it's an endless falling and there isn't a way out. I'm dizzy and I want to throw up. I'm anxious and having anxiety attacks. I want to cry. I want to run. I'm having one of those days. This past week, I heard an interview on NPR radio. It was an up and coming rising star in Nashville right now, Margot Price. And in her interview, which was a lengthy interview, she told that the lyrics in her songs oftentimes tell her life story. And she told about the hands of time, which is the name of her song and how it told about her grandfather and mother and uncle and aunt and her mom and dad, how they all lost the family farm when she was a child and how it left them feeling hopeless. And our father had to drive into town to work and work as a prison guard. And then the one conducting the interview said, but what about that line where you said something about the death of the firstborn and her voice cracked and she spoke softly and she said, yes, I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. It was the hardest time of my life. My baby was born. I had twins and the firstborn was born with a heart condition and surgery was done immediately, but yet the baby didn't live beyond two weeks. And then she continued by saying, you know, we all deal with things differently and it's really hard on a marriage. And I'm just really thankful that my husband stood beside me. And he said, so the one conducting the interview, he said, are you referring to what you oftentimes sing about how you turn to the bottle? And she almost sounded embarrassed and her voice cracked again. And she said, yes, I'm talking about those days when it hurt so bad and I just drinks would numb the pain. And then he said, so does that have something to do with your other song about the weekend? And she said, yes, it was one of the lowest times in my life and I'm totally embarrassed to talk about it. And if you'll notice, even in the song, I'm vague about what really happens because I don't want to talk about it. But that weekend, I decided that I'd reached a low and I was going to have to check myself in somewhere. And the irony is I was checked in that weekend. I was arrested and I spent time in jail. She said, I knew then I had to turn somewhere else. If this is our life, in the fact that we experience loss, we experience pain. It is so tempting for us to turn to a substance to mask that. But the problem is, it's nothing more than a Band-Aid. And, and when that substance wears off, the hopelessness is still there, just as real as it's ever been. And so we turn to work and we become a workaholic, but, but we have to rest sometime. And when we do, the rawness of that hopelessness is just as real as it's ever been. And so some people turn to shopping and they become a shopaholic because they just want to cover up what's really there. But the problem is the money runs out and we have to come home sometime and it's just as real. The hopelessness is just as painful. And some people turn to just a life of joking. Everything's a joke because they don't want to be serious because when they're serious, it's just as real. Listen, we have all kinds of things that we turn to to try to mask the hopelessness. But the reality is there's only one that can do something other than mask it. And our resurrected Lord, he is the source of hope. He is the well of hope. He can come and he can offer healing and nothing else can offer that healing.
No one else. You see in this room right now are many people that they can sincerely say they have a life of hope. But it's not because we've never had a feeling or the experience of hopelessness. If any of us have true hope today, it's because we have met and we have surrendered. We have learned and we have submitted to the one that can truly bring hope. Do you have your Bibles open? I hope you do. I hope you'll look to Luke the 24th chapter. If you go back to Luke the 22nd chapter from 22 to 24, we cover roughly 72 hours, give or take a little bit. And in those 72 hours, we see that it begins to, to be like a, a story gone wrong. Now, you and I know in the big picture, it's a story where a lot of things are going right, but just stay with me for just a moment. There are some things where some individuals that just before these 72 hours, they would have said everything was good in life. Everything was good. Judas would have said, wow, I'm going to get rich. I'm going to get rich. Everything's good. But when he betrayed the Lord, it didn't leave him with a feeling of everything's good. Instead, he came to the realization of how hopeless he was. Now, he didn't deal with it in a good way. He returned throwing the 30 pieces of silver on the floor. And then he ended his life. Peter, that night that Jesus was arrested, went out and he denied Jesus three times after earlier saying he would never do that. And the result was he went out and he wept bitterly. Another one of the gospels tells us that all of the apostles forsook him. It wasn't just a few you see, they all became hopeless. They saw their Lord, the one that they had left so much to follow him. And now, where was he? He'd been executed. He'd been buried. He was dead. They were hopeless. What are they going to do and where are they going to turn? Well, you see there in Luke, the 24th chapter, it begins in an amazing way. The women are going to go back to the tomb in a sense to pay honor and tribute to Jesus. But yet when they get there, they find that the stone has been rolled away and they find that the tomb is empty. Drop down and look at the last part of the fifth verse, Luke 24, 5. Notice at the end, they had seen two angels there and the angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. But he is risen. Let that sink in. And not amazing? Let's go to the tomb. Let's visit where Jesus is. He's not here. He's risen. And then you read on. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? Hang on to that because that's meaningful the rest of this chapter. The whole idea that the angels were saying and later Jesus would say was, don't you remember what was taught to you? Don't you believe what was taught to you? Listen today, if you want hope, you're going to have to believe the teachings of Jesus, even when they go contrary to what you see. They had seen him die. Could they believe his words that he would rise again? And in verse seven saying, the son of man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And what? The third day rise again. That was essential. Do you realize he is going to rise again? He said he was back there in Luke 24 and verse seven. Now, when we see this picture, let's go back a slide. When you see this picture here, this is an artistic rendering of, of two men on the road to Emmaus. They had been in Jerusalem. They had put their hope in Jesus. They'd watched Jesus die. They had become hopeless. They didn't leave Jerusalem, though, to that third day. 
And when the women came back from the tomb, they heard the report that he was not there. Remember Peter and John and others ran to the tomb and they saw with their own eyes that Jesus wasn't there too. But you see, the, the emphasis kept being on the fact we still haven't seen Jesus. If we can't see him alive, we're not going to believe it. Even though Jesus had said, I'm going to resurrect the third day. And even though the angels had said, he is alive. In their hopelessness, they left Jerusalem to go to Emmaus. See there in verse 13, we learn that Emmaus was a seven mile trek from Jerusalem. And on this map, we see that it's a little bit northeast. And in verse 14, we see that they were talking together of all these things that had happened. And in verse 15 and 16, we see that as they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went to them. But notice, their eyes were restrained or constrained. In other words, Jesus miraculously made it so that they would not be able to identify that he was Jesus. And so these men are walking hopelessly. They are in conversation, sharing and talk together, reasoning, inquiring, questioning, seeking diligently to make sense of what has happened. And Jesus comes along and he begins to interact with them. Look at verse 17. He says to them, what conversation is this that you've had with one another and you walk and are sad? You see, now he not only points out their words, he points out their demeanor. Now you think if, if they're on a seven mile walk and they're very sad, Imagine the demeanor of those that would walk that were very sad. That could have easily been a two-hour journey. Because they were sad and in deep conversation, it might have been a two-and-a-half or three-hour journey. Now, that's important when we think about in a few minutes all the teaching that Jesus did. Think of the length of time that he had to talk with them. But notice, as he comes along beside them there, and in verse 18... Cleopas answered him when he asked them, like, what about this, this conversation that you're having? And, and notice Cleopas' answer. Cleopas says, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happen these days? What's that like to today? That would be the same kind of situation today if a person that had been in Brussels for several days now walked by the airport and saw all of, of the investigation taking place and saw the flowers and the memorials that have been set up and listened to the dialogue as people were talking about the sad events, that, the tragic events that have taken place. And imagine someone in Brussels walking up to two individuals that's standing there looking at and says, hey, what's all this sad talk that's going on around here? And you can imagine someone turn around and saying, are you the only stranger in Brussels? This makes no sense. How can you be standing right here and say, you do not know what's so sad right now? You see, what we need to realize is that Jesus' birth, his life, his execution, and his resurrection was not some private thing that was done off to the side 
When Jesus was born, angels announced it and King Herod was so jealous of him, he tried to kill him and did kill a lot of baby boys in the meantime. When Jesus began his public ministry, Jesus had not just 10 or 20, not hundreds, he had thousands upon thousands following him. He was known throughout Galilee, Jerusalem, Judea, and even Samaria. And when he was arrested, it wasn't a little group that arrested him. It was large bands of soldiers that arrested him. And when he was on trial, he was marched through the streets and, and he stood before Pilate. And then he was marched over to Herod. And then he's marched back to Pilate. And he goes in and out of Pilate's porch, speaking to the masses. And finally, towards the end, Pilate says, well, who are we going to release? Barabbas? Yes, release Barabbas. Well, why don't we release Jesus? No, crucify him. Crucify him. And he's marched through the streets as the one who's going to be executed along with the other two thieves. And when he goes just outside the city gate on a very busy entrance into the city, it is so public that the sign that Pilate hangs over his head that this is king of the Jews is written in three languages. And if all of the facts aren't enough, Almighty God made sure that no human being on earth would miss what had just happened. He hung on that cross for six hours, the last three hours from noon till three. God darkened the sun. He quaked the earth so violently that rocks broke and split open. Tombs were opened up and some of the ones that had died were resurrected. And the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom to let everyone know God is involved in this. For the first time, anyone, because of the death of Jesus, could look into the holies of holies and they could live because of Jesus being the mediator. All of this miraculous and all the things that took place were so much so that the hard-crusted Roman centurion looks up at Jesus after all these miracles and he says, Behold, this truly was the Son of God. 31 years later, Paul would stand before Agrippa and in Acts the 26th chapter, he would tell how he preached about Christ's suffering, referring to his crucifixion and how he would be resurrected from the dead. And in Acts 26 and 24, we see that Festus would cry out to him and say, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And in 25, his answer was, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. I speak the words of truth and reason. And then he looks back to the king and 31 years after the fact, he looks at the king and he says, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. When we go back to our text in Luke, the 24th chapter and verse 18, and when Cleopas says to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? It makes sense. He's literally saying there is no body that's been in Jerusalem this last week that would not know what we're talking about. It's Cleopas' way of, of calling Jesus out. He doesn't know it's Jesus. He's calling it out to saying, how, how could you ask about this? And then in verse 19, 
He said, well, what things? And they answered and said, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And 20 pointed out the fact that they'd been condemned and that he is death also was because of crucifixion. And in 21, we see this road of hopelessness has memory. You know that, don't you? A road of hopelessness always has memory. Look how he says this. But we were hoping that it was he, this Jesus, who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since the things happened. You see, we just had this hope. We've been in Roman oppression. We think about the Davidic kingdom. And we think about when, when David reigned, that no enemies could conquer, that, that Christ, that, that God's kingdom under David was so powerful. And we had hope that this Jesus of Nazareth was going to be the same kind of powerful ruler. We'd hoped that. Think back to the times of your hopelessness. You're always able to think of that and then think back to when you hoped. Maybe you left a doctor's appointment feeling hopeless when you had hoped for a different diagnosis. Maybe the relationship didn't go the way that you had hoped that it would go. And as you see that it's hopeless, you also are able to say, I'd hoped that it would be different. You see, hopelessness always has memory. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be the answer for their deliverance. And then in 22, when the women came back to them, this is how the men are telling this story, says we were astonished. So that goes along with our theme of marvelous teaching, doesn't it? They were astonished. There's something distinct about what they were saying. It's not every day that someone comes back and tells you I visited the grave, but yet it was found empty and angels were there and they told us that he is alive. But notice 24 and notice how it ends. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, I want you to notice that while they're on this road from Jerusalem to a they're in a hopeless state. Jesus is going to take them on another road. Jesus is going to give them enlightenment. But it's a less traveled road. And a lot of the time people don't want this less traveled road because one reason why, it usually begins with a rebuke. I'd like for you to notice here in verse 25 when he said to them, this is Jesus' response. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Let that sink in for just a moment. How would you have responded if you would have been Jesus? These two men are walking along the way and they've had such a rough week and they're leaving Jerusalem in despair. I think a lot of people would picture Jesus kind of putting his arms around them and saying, guys, I know it's been such a hard week and I feel so sorry for you and I understand where you're coming from. He doesn't do that. He has compassion and he has great love for them. But notice he says, guys, you're foolish. And let me tell you one reason why you have such great misunderstanding in your life. You are slow to believe what has been taught since the very beginning. 
Now listen. Anytime we are slow to completely yield ourselves to the teachings of God, we are acting foolish and we will always find ourselves feeling hopeless. Someone says, oh, no, no, but, but, but I'm very religious. It's not enough to be religious. Religion is important because God's the one who created it. But it comes down to the fact, will we be quick, not slow, will we be quick to believe if God speaks? Or do we always question God? And do we challenge God? Well, I know this is what you're saying to do, God, but I like to do some things my way. We're going to find ourselves in unbelief. Notice when we go to verse 27, he began... Now imagine these hours that he spent walking along and teaching. He began at Moses. Maybe he went back to Genesis 3.15 and said, look, you remember? We see there that, that Satan is going to bruise the heel, but, but look what Jesus is going to do. He's going to crush the head. That's a prophecy about what you just saw in Jesus being crucified because you didn't stay around long enough to see that he's resurrected and he crushed the head. Or imagine when he spoke to them about Isaiah 53, has already been mentioned before the Lord's Supper. Imagine whenever he mentions that, that I'm that lamb, or he's not telling them yet that this is he. They think a stranger, but he's teaching them. Do you realize that what you saw this week was the great Passover? Do you realize that the lamb was laying down his life? Or skip down to verse eight in the last part. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Do you realize that it's because of sin, your sin, my sin, that he had to die? Jesus was trying to explain that to them. Or imagine in Psalm, imagine Jesus on this road teaching them that when you look in verse 16, in verse 10, the last part, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's what Peter used in the sermon in Acts, the second chapter, to talk about that Jesus truly fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. But every journey needs a rest stop. And so when we come to verse 28, we see that they'd come to their arrival in Emmaus and the night was, the evening was far spent. They'd been traveling a while. The sun had been down. They're turning into their house and Jesus acted like he would go a little further. But notice in 29, they constrained him. In other words, they really, really encouraged him. You can't go on saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And while they were there, we see in 30 that he sat down at the table with them and he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Can you imagine them hearing Jesus pray? Can you imagine that fellowship together and then we read in verse 31, their eyes were open. He allowed them to see. When I read this occasion, one of the great post-resurrection stories in scripture, I have a new and perhaps even greater appreciation for a verse that I've already loved for so long. Psalm 46 and 10. Be still and know that I am God. They'd been traveling that day and they didn't realize they were walking with God on earth. They'd listened to the teachings and perhaps they were really starting to figure this out 
I can imagine by this time they're probably thinking to themselves, we probably shouldn't have left Jerusalem. And they have been so impressed with his teachings. They've learned so much. Their hope is probably starting to be restored. And so he's going to travel on. And they're like, no, 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 no. You've got to stay with us. You know what they were probably saying? We want to sit down and eat supper and we want you to continue talking to us. We're seeing things more clearly than we've ever seen them before. They finally were knowing God. And now their eyes were, were opened and, and they saw this is the resurrected Lord. And he vanishes from their sight. But I want you to notice that very next thing in verse 32. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? How awesome is that phrase? Can you imagine them looking at each other? Can you imagine? You know how when you're with somebody and you see something that you just can't believe and all you can do is kind of look at each other and just stare for just a moment? Can you imagine when Jesus revealed, hey, I, I'm Jesus, the resurrected one. And then he vanishes. And can you imagine them looking at the chair that Jesus was sitting in and looking at each other and looking back at the chair and looking at each other. And then finally the, the, the silence is broken. And can you imagine them saying, didn't our hearts burn when he did what? He enlightened us. They're able to say, we understand that Old Testament teaching that prophesied Jesus more than we've ever understood it. We now understand Jesus and his life and his death and his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection like we've never understood it. Didn't your heart burn? Has your heart ever burned? Because you've studied the truth. And as you studied it, there's been that eye-opening enlightenment. Are you like, yes. Look how rich that is. Look how hope-filled that is. Look at the guidance that that gives me. If you don't have those kind of rest stops in your life, you are going to miss the greatest state of hope. We've got to be able to accept the rebuking. And we've got to be able to go back into the word of God and say, God, enlighten me. What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to gain? And they couldn't wait till the next morning in the 24th chapter in verse 33, they arose that very same hour and they traveled the very same road. They returned to Jerusalem. But notice in verse 35, they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. All of us have traveled a road and then we've gone back and said, wow, this, this road has, has been under construction. This road is different. Let me tell you, that road was a lot different for them. It wasn't a long, sad road on the way back. My guess is they probably made it back twice as fast as it took for them to get there because they were excited. They couldn't wait to get back to the disciples and say, let us tell you who we just walked with, but let us tell you who burned our heart as he taught us. Let us tell you that now we are hope-filled. I don't know what your hopelessness might be right now, but I tell you, there is one that won't just put a Band-Aid on it. He will heal you if you're willing to walk with him and allow him to open your eyes and to learn. 
A few of us here have a friend that lives in another state named Michael Whitworth. His two-year-old died just a few months ago. Michael was an amazing author of several books. And he wrote this week, he said, if the empty tomb doesn't take your breath away, you've never wept beside a grave. Being a follower of Jesus will not remove all of the pain and the struggles and the obstacles in our life. But he will bring us peace in the midst of our pain. He will bring healing in the midst of our brokenness. The question is, will we walk with him? This morning, if there's anything we can do to help you walk with the resurrected Lord, if you're ready this morning to become a Christian and be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins as a believer, willing to repent and confess, we'd be honored to assist you with that. Maybe you've begun that journey and you've lost way of that journey and you've stopped walking as closely and you're ready to repent and confess sin and come back and walk closely and let your heart burn with the wonderful teachings that set you on fire for the Lord. Listen, it's so easy to get cold. It's so easy to think that your way is just a little bit better than God's way. But that way ends up leading to hopelessness. This morning, don't walk that way. Come back to hope. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.